Kia ora fam, it's Sarayed Cameron here for Q Theatre's Meet the Makers podcast series. Julia Croft, Nisha Madden and Virginia Frankovich are about to bring this show that they have co-created up to Q Theatre's loft from Wednesday, October 24th till the 3rd of November and that will be playing at 7.30 each night. And it is going to be absolutely amazing and witch-like and terrifying and sexy and beautiful and if you don't go I am coming to your house and I am taking you there myself. So I'm speaking with Julia Croft currently in Wellington performing the debut season of Medusa is that right? That is correct. Oh yay. And you're at Circa Theatre? Yes we're at Circa 2 and then we bring it up to Auckland in a couple of weeks. You devised it with Nisha Madden and Virginia Frankovich? Yep, yeah, three of us created it together. I hate the word devised, but we made oh, it together. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, why, do you a- hate, why do you hate the word devised? Um, uh, probably like the stink of past experiences and feeling like that word has been co-opted by a bunch of dude theatre makers that I wish to differentiate myself from. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, maybe it's the way I'm used to hearing it, but it does seem like it minimises it a little bit as well. Yeah, and it puts me in the mind of that kind of uh, Lecoq, Lepage style of like, ooh, it's theatre magic because it's a chair, but it's also a boat. And um, I, don't, I, don't, I feel like we're trying to do something quite different. That's not the word devising's fault. That's no, it just... isn't. That's people's <laughs> fault, like mostly. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's other people's fault. Why have you made Medusa? To change the world to yes. tear down the patriarchy one theater show at a time Classic. um i mean joking not joking that's actually kind of what i think we're trying to do but um i think in this particular process there are like several investigations going on uh one of which being like how do you how do you create a feminist process how do you create a process in which those um politics are really present in the making of, not just the content, and how are those politics present in the form, not just the content. So part of the investigation, I think, for this work has been how do three artists share power? How do you diffuse the power in the room and hold uh, three voices equally, which has been really brilliant and really challenging. Um, And I think the other thing we're trying to do is Really influenced by Jill Soloway's uh, keynote address at the Toronto Film Festival a couple of years ago where they spoke about potentially what a female gaze could be. Um, I think we're trying to find a theatrical language that might be getting at a female gaze. I feel like I've spent a few years making work that's like repeatedly pointing at what's f***ed up and that's fine because that's necessary, but reaching a stage in which I'm kind of more interested in finding the cracks and and making little moments of alternative ways of being in the world or alternative worlds and that being a political act. So I think that the what we're doing in terms of the, the actual theatre of it is trying to create something that feels to us like an alternative way of looking at the world. When you say that you want to bring feminist politics into the process, mm-hmm. um, and into the performance of the work. Can you explain what you mean by feminist politics? I think in, in this process. case, I mean, I think on one level, like creating a feminist process, right, it's like a life's work. 
Mm. Um, and at this little beginning stage, it's really about how do you distribute power in the room evenly. Um, I think theatre is a really interesting um, place to, to investigate that because it's classically it's set up as a very hierarchical art form. Um, and in this process, we don't have a director. We've got three co-creators who are also co-performers, who are also co-writers, who are also in some ways co-designing with our designer. Um, and what we're trying to do is distribute the power between the three of us equally so there's a sense of everyone's voice being heard and acknowledged and included in the work. I think we also wanted to make a space where the <clears throat> line between like what your best professional self is and what your messy personal self is is kind of non-existent. So creating a space in which conflict can be resolved really openly and honestly where if people need to spend three days crying on the floor, they can spend three days crying on the floor. And I guess creating a space where, in a kind of healing way for the three of us, things that we've felt about ourselves that have been not allowed or transgressive or looked on in a work context as if it's getting in the way or it's unprofessional, trying to create an environment where that's not the case, where all the sort of messy parts of yourself and your self-doubt is able to be held by the other creators. I don't know if you've ever felt that in a, I've certainly felt in particularly male-led processes where I've been really upset but you feel like you have to like suck it up and get on with the work and I don't know if those things are separate. So much of what you're talking about, about like what's been bad for you, what you haven't enjoyed or like bringing crying into the room as something that you shouldn't be ashamed of is such a feminine thing. Like, yeah. and I don't mean you know whatever feminine is or whatever feminine means it's kind of a frustrating word to use but mm -hmm. I guess in opposition to like the toxic masculinity of so many other rehearsal rooms just being allowed to be honest about the way you feel and using that in your work rather than pushing it down eh that's yeah 100% because like, mm, I think so I've useful. never been in a process ever where there isn't a point where someone or everyone hits full doubt and that's mm. part of it and I've watched a lot of particularly male directors deal with that by doubling down on their certainty. And for me, that has always made the work suffer. And in this process, it felt really cathartic and really important to acknowledge when we were in the, the real shit of it, the real doubt, and be able to articulate that however you want to articulate it, if that's by crying or talking or putting on some loud music and thrashing around, acknowledging just being honest and acknowledging where you're at emotionally and trusting the other people in the room to hold you in that mm. and not get obsessed with the, the product of it because at the end of the day you do need a show but the show is only such a small part of what it is to make art. This makes me so like invested in feminist work now is this idea of looking at it as being feminist in every possible like from every possible angle, you know, how do you yeah. actually pay people for their time? Like that yeah. seems to me to be such a feminist question. But so often people will ask you to do a show that they claim is feminist and there's never any, no one ever talks about money, you know? Yeah. Or put it in a structure, inside a structure that isn't feminist. I've done work for companies that's called itself feminist, but then I look at the larger structure of the company and nothing about the company structure ref reflects a feminist politics. So then I feel slightly 
feels slightly disingenuous. It feels like then it's a, a marketing ploy as opposed to a real investigation, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah, completely, because people have cottoned on to the idea that it is something that sells and it's something mm-hmm. that's going to make people excited or aroused in some ways. Yeah, I mean, that puts it, that's an interesting point to be making feminist work, right? When it, When you're kind of, I think, by virtue of calling myself a feminist, you're trying to do some pushback against capitalism, but also mm. at the same time going, this, these politics are starting to carry capital, and that's mm. kind of an interesting and sort of dangerous and exciting territory to be in, in a way. I'm really noticing people cotton on to the things that you put around women when you welcome them in, when you welcome them into a space. Even just like, I read an article about Lena Waithe that was also written by a queer black woman. And I was like, okay, cool. We're in this time now where we realize that just interviewing the person isn't enough. Interviewing the person and having someone write about them who can understand them, that's like, that's the Mm -hmm. next step, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is interesting. I remember a few years ago in Auckland, there was a production that came over from Australia and the name of it escapes me. uh, That was about the stolen generation. Um, And there was a sort of interesting debate that I feel like if it happened now would really kick off, but just sort of percolated at the time around getting non-Indigenous theatre makers and non-Indigenous reviewers to review Indigenous work. Mm. And I think there's something that I've certainly found around a lot of the reviewers in um, New Zealand being uh, straight white men of a certain age. And it's really interesting to watch how work particularly like Medusa I think that's like not just in content but formally pushing against something that is intrinsically I think unknowable in some ways um putting that in and we're giving the power to a reviewer that is never it's not for them absolutely and which is not to say I think that straight white men can't enjoy the work I always say it's a bit like a um, Batman film isn't for me I can still enjoy it ish have a good time ish but I'm ish. always aware, <laughs> ish, like really ish, but I'm always aware it's not for me. And I feel yeah. a bit like the, the, where me, Nisha and Virginia are getting in terms of the, um, the f- what the work's doing formally is really going, it's, it's speaking to quite a different experience and you can enjoy it, but don't think for a second it's for you because it's not. And the interesting thing then, I think, is that like you, you will watch a Batman film with the eyes of someone who has had to study the people in these films for mm-hmm. your whole life. Well, because you know, I think um, anyone that isn't um, a straight white cis man has had to spend their life in a practice of translation. Mm-hmm. And it's something, it's a muscle that you get good at, of like I have to translate this in order to insert myself into this narrative and that's, there's, there's a practice in that that you get really good at. And then by the time you're an adult, you're doing it unconsciously, but doesn't mean it's not happening. And I think that's part of the, the sort of the wider cultural panic is that's now being asked of people that have taken for granted that they don't have to translate everything because they're already the every human. My oh God, I just, I think about Nanette when you say that, but I just think that I think about Nanette all the time. Like, oh my every- God. <laughs> right. Every but, time I'm trying to make something, I'm like, is it as good as Nanette? Probably not, but I should just keep going anyway. 
Oh, I feel like there's sometimes you see things that are really good and you're like, yeah, I'm inspired and I'm going to keep going. And sometimes you see things like Nanette and it's just like, well, I'm done. I'm done here. <laughs> I could go for the rest of my life and I'm not ever going to scratch your genius, Hannah Gadsby. Um, so you've you've been talking about how you guys are pushing the form of theatre? Yeah. Or yeah. is or of feminist theatre? Of theatre, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I, th- I guess... Our work, all of us, um, sits somewhere. We call it live art, which is a term that, I mean, is more known, I guess, in the UK than here, but I'm trying to use it a lot because it feels like a good catch-all for work that doesn't sit comfortably in any discipline. It's not quite theatre. It's not quite dance. It's not quite performance art. It's sort of somewhere in between all those disciplines, and it's something that's really trying to create a, a genuine live encounter between an audience and a performer or performers. Nisha called it the other day, it's like a theatre poem, and some I think of it a little bit like a living installation. It's, yeah, so it's it's trying, and it's trying, I think, we've got this sound designer who, oh my God, is an absolute genius, Claire Duncan. She also um, performs under the moniker IE Crazy, and so it's a so there's a lot the sound component of the piece is is really present it's a very sound led piece of work but i think somewhere between the sound and the images and the physicality of those images we're trying to make an experience which is working on a slightly different logic that is slightly more subconscious or dream based and it's very much of the body so hopefully by the end audiences feel like they've had a really visceral physical body experience watching the work why did you use the jumping off point as medusa basically because of the uh that her her cultural history is really interesting to me i've i'm sort of in an ongoing forever love affair with the performance art of the 70s like there was this whole generation of feminist performance artists like um, Carolee Schneeman, like Anna Mendieta, that is just aesthetically very much my vibe. So, And, the, and that's, this is all predominantly European and America-based, right? It is very America-heavy. It is very US-centric, very white woman-heavy. It's very cis-heavy. It is not – certainly I think there's – I think there's also there – there are problems with the second wave ofs. But there's also a, a whole um, – there, there is a lot of genius in that wave that I am reluctant to throw the baby out with the bathwater because I think uh, there was some art going on. There was some politics and art going on around that time that still really – I really connect with. And Medusa appeared around that time through um, – actually a lot through writing and poetry and a, a famous theorist and writer called Helene Sisu – as a symbol for women to reclaim uh, anger. Uh, she'd, Medusa having functioned as a kind of uh, figure through art history and literature through a male lens for hundreds of thousands of years. And then in the 70s, a whole bunch of women, Sylvia Plath included, started to reclaim her as a source of power. So that's how Medusa started to function, I guess, in this work. So everything that's in the show is connected to Medusa in a very subconscious or id way. It's not, it's not, there's nothing about Medusa that is literal in the show, if that makes sense. I find it, yeah, I find that really interesting. I don't know any of this 
academic or modern literature behind Medusa, but Medusa has just always been like so cool and so mm. interesting to me. Like I rewrote the story of her. My grandma would always read me Greek myths when I was little and I rewrote the story of Medusa like so many times. I had this terrible printed out word art version of it where like the spelling is so bad and I just added all these little snakes to like a face that I've drawn because something about a woman who was that angry and also had what I kind of thought was curly hair was like just really exciting. Yeah, it is. It, it's exciting. And for me, there's also one of the things that I got interested in about her first, which feels really current, is um, when I started making work, it was very much like pointing at the male gaze. And what mm. I like about Medusa is you can look at her, but if she looks back at you, you turn to stone. So you can, she, she actually has this epic level of control over the gaze. And for mm. me, there's something about her, and which I guess Freud riffed on and made his own thing. There's something about that level of anger or monstrosity to me that is really tapping at something kind of primal and erotic. Mm. And I don't expect everyone to get turned on by punching things. I do. I don't kink shame. What of it? (laughs) (laughs) There it is. Do with that what you will. (laughs) Come and see the show. As I said before, my knowledge of Medusa is really uh, bitsy. All I remember is, well, I can remember that there was, that in one story about her, there's a princess called Andromeda and potentially a sea dragon. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's a man and there's a horse that has feathers and then there's all slash wings. And then we have, Medusa and a king and a head in a sack but please for the love of God can you help me give me a bit more info so she's um she's known best through uh Ovid's Metamorphosis where she's actually like a footnote right so the story is actually a Perseus going to rescue Andromeda and Mm. then he sort of drops in oh yeah by the way I met this woman whose head was snakes who turns men to stone and I chopped off her head and used it as a weapon no big deal Uh, no, no big deal. Just her head. It's fine. She's a footnote. Um, she, but actually, previous to that, particularly in North African mythology, she'd, there'd been this figure of uh, the goddess with snakes for hair, for hair who functioned. Oh, so in she appears those, in other countries' stories. Yeah, pre-Greco-Roman, there there are instances of the goddess with snakes for hair who actually functions quite a lot like Kali in Hindu mythology as the kind of creator destroyer figure. Of the, and then she, then she appears in Ovid's Metamorphosis, um, as a, she's a victim of rape. So the story goes, this is an, another part to her story that's super patriarchal and and interesting. So her origin story, according to Ovid, was that she was a beautiful maiden who was raped by Neptune in Athena's temple, and Athena was jealous. So Athena turned her into the snake monster and made her turn people to stone by looking at them so she had to live in isolation and that's where Perseus finds her and he's the the hero who gets to defeat her. So that's kind of the origin myths of Medusa. And Freud had a a great time with his uh, interpretation of her which was 
around fear of he he interpreted her as a symbol of female genitalia. Um, so she was symbolic of the fear we all have about pussies because they don't have because there's no penis. They're si- signifying a lack or a castration anxiety. So all those she sort of swims around between all those um, myths that have mostly been authored by men. She pops up a lot in advertising, weirdly, of like Versace uses her as a symbol and oh, yeah. Absinthe uses her as a symbol. Um, and then her next sort of big moment was in the second wave um, from starting with this cultural theorist, Helene Sisso, who talked about the laugh of the Medusa. What, what did she mean by the laugh of the Medusa? The laugh of the Medusa was the name of her essay where she was really talking about taking all those that thing we were talking about before of taking all the things that have felt transgressive, particularly anger, and turning that into a source of glee or joy or oh. empowerment or like just subverting the the negative narrative and making it a positive. It also sounds like if she's been used in advertising that other people might have found her quite sexy as well in that case, you know? And I think Freud has something to do with that. Okay, so if I'm coming to the show, right, and I don't go to a lot of theatre... And yes. I don't know too much about what – I haven't, like, seen a Nisha Madden work, a Virginia work, a Julia Croft work. I haven't seen any of any of these plays before. What am I going to – like, what can I expect when I sit down with an ice cream at Medusa? What you can expect to see is one hour-long theatre poem series of images – that are part ritual and part invocation. And formally it kind of moves between games we play with the audience to poetry that we've written, that we speak to an audience, to stuff that could be in a dance theatre show, to stuff that could be in a live music gig kind of context. And the whole show is one long ritual build-up to a ceremonial smashing of the patriarchy slash our own inhibitions slash the stage itself. Sounds so amazing. <laughs> and it's had this amazing sound design on it, which lifts any work like so infinitely. And Nisha's wearing some kind of amazing white coat. Those are the main things that I know about it. Nisha is wearing a very, very beautiful and expensive white shirt. Um, oh, is it a white shirt? It is a white shirt. Oh. Uh, and we've got a great reveal three quarters of the way through of some really sexy costumes that I'm really into stealing um, at the end of the season. And yeah, the great. sound design really is we sort of, we met Claire about, I, I met Claire about a year and a half ago when she did the sound design on Virginia's show Revolt. She said Revolt Again. Mm-hmm. And um, she's really, and we were all collectively kind of in love with her, so decided really early on that we wanted this to be a really sound, heavy piece. So we use microphones in lots of different and unexpected ways, and we've got theremins that we play, and we've got a loop pedal that we really push to as much as a loop pedal can handle. And um, and we've got subs under the seating block so it's really the sound is like an oral and really visceral experience at the same time and it's really oh, cool. I mean I know you're not allowed to say this about your own work 
but because it, it was all clear, it is one of the best, if not the best, sound I've ever heard in a theatre show in my life. And we're all, like, every day beyond grateful to have had Claire in the room with us the whole time. I've also never had a sound designer so involved. Like, she yeah. was there in rehearsal pretty much every right. day making stuff with us and throwing out different offers. And she's really kind of part of the really part of the core team of this work. That's another way that it's so feminist, right? Like, that is that is the feminism of it. Yeah. yeah deep not collaboration. Deep collaboration, sort of, with, and also with Meg Rolandi, who's our performance designer, who has designed a beautiful set, but has also really infiltrated the spatial choices that are being made all the time on stage. And we're kind of... At, at every one time, anyone in the room, even Lydia, who's our producer, at any one time, Lydia, Claire, Meg, or any of us is the director, is the stage manager, is the performer, is the musician. The f- I, I'm kind of, I'm really into the collaboration that um, flattens the distinction between those roles. So that's been a really exciting way to work um, with a really rad bunch of human women. Julia, I am livid that I'm not going to be here for the Auckland season of this. Oh my God, are you away when we're on? I Yeah, yeah, I think I might get to see it in Wellington. Um, congratulations on debuting the show in Wellington and I have heard so many absolutely sickening reviews for this um, from women that I love. So I just like wish you all the best for your Auckland Thank season. You it's so going to be amazing. I mean, it's just like, what a dream to have Nisha and Virginia in a room. That's really mm. the win of it all. It's like mm, two yeah. of the artists in this country that I love and respect the most, and they want to make work with me. And That's the three of you are all at this cool stage. You know, you've gone so far into these questions for such a long time, and now that you can all do it together, that's like, oh, that's just the best. Yeah, and it feels like, I think, having come out of this year really come out of one phase of interest in what I'm making into a new phase and I'm really mm. excited by what this new phase is. I feel like I kind of, I guess I had, I couldn't start without it being really explicit. I just needed to get that out and then from there you can make the work that you really want to make. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Julia. I'm going to sign off now. Okay, such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, Julia, for that amazing and actually very educational chat. I did not know three quarters of those things about Medusa. So Medusa will be playing at Q Theatre's Loft from Wednesday, October 24th till the 3rd of November at 7.30pm and you can get your tickets from qtheatre.co.nz.